Okay, today uh, we're going to be talking about the 1920s. I mentioned, I think before, I think is a very underrated decade. Uh, uh, I didn't think all that much was going on in the 1920s until I actually had to teach a course on it, uh, a course that I had inherited from my predecessor here at Lawrence, and I thought that I would just teach the course once and that, that would be it, uh, and then I'd move on, but I became so fascinated with the decade uh, that I decided to keep teaching it. So I think it's a very interesting and important decade. Now, the 1920s in America are a decade of contrasts. They were a time of modernism, and I'll get to what that is in a moment, uh, with consumerism, uh, questioning of religious authority, uh, urbanism, the move to cities, uh, loose sexuality, moral relativism. And they were also, the 1920s, a time of traditionalism, with religious fundamentalism, uh, anti-urban attitudes, moral absolutism, uh, as well as prohibition and the Ku Klux Klan. The 1920s were a time of great prosperity in the cities and among workers, but a period of depression among farmers. And the 20s were a decade in which ethnic communities flourished, even as anti-ethnic sentiment among Protestant Americans reached its peak with immigration restriction, prohibition, and renewed 100% Americanism initiatives, not to mention the Ku Klux Klan. And in a sense, the 1920s reminds me of the 1990s. Both decades were characterized by a sense of modernism, a sense of cultural liberation in fashion, in music, in sexual mores, in personal morality. And both decades, the 20s and the 90s, featured a strong reaction to that liberation from more traditional segments of the uh, American population, people who were just appalled by what they were seeing. Uh, uh, and who wished to return to an earlier and morally less ambiguous time when right was right, wrong was wrong, and everybody knew the difference immediately. Now, in the 1990s, modernism and liberation might be represented by Bill Clinton, a moral relativist, to say the least, and a man who also, to say the least, was liberated in his approach to personal and sexual behaviors. And his prosecutor during the impeachment crisis of 1998 and his tormentor, Kenneth Starr, he represented in the 1990s, in my view, traditional morality, a strong reaction to personal liberation and an attempt to scale it back. And just as moral traditionalists like Kenneth Starr in the 1990s viewed for example, South Park or Howard Stern or Internet sex as affronts to basic decency and simple right and wrong. In the 1920s, they viewed drinking, short skirts on women, and premarital sexual activity in the same way, a sense that American society was on the brink of moral collapse. And, correspondingly, just as proponents of what might be called cultural liberation in the 1990s viewed the Kenneth Stars of the world as narrow-minded, morally rigid busybodies, their 1920s counterparts ridiculed the small minds in America's small towns who tried to impose their out-of-date moral standards on a modern, meaning urban, 
nation through religious fundamentalism, prohibition, and in some instances the Ku Klux Klan. Now, of course, we don't know today how the battle between the forces of liberation and traditionalism of the 1990s uh, will turn out in the 21st century. Because even with Kenneth Starr's failure to impeach uh, uh, or remove Bill Clinton uh, from office, uh, this issue is far from decided. Impeachment, in fact, was one battle, just one battle, in what turned out to be a long war that continued through the 2004 presidential election and continues uh, today. But while we don't know how this battle between modernism and traditionalism will turn out in the 21st century. We do know how the battle turned out in the 1920s, and this outcome may be instructive in predicting our own future today and in the future. In the 1920s, I think it's fair to say, the forces of liberation won out. Prohibition ended in 1933. The Ku Klux Klan lost much of its strength and its influence, and Religious fundamentalists who had opposed the teachings of evolution, while they won some legislative and some judicial battles, as in the famous Scopes trial uh, in Tennessee, for the most part, the traditionalists lost the battle for public opinion. And more generally, the more liberated social mores of the 1920s worked their way gradually into the everyday lives of the average American citizen. And that's how culture usually works. And that's how cultural changes usually work. Not so much through the leaders, the trendsetters, but through the followers. The people who absorb and ratify cultural shifts almost without thinking about it as if it's a natural course of events. For example, I always thought that uh, the cultural liberation of the 1960s was ratified not during the 1960s themselves, when, say, college students began smoking marijuana, but in the 70s and 80s, when conservative Republicans who had voted for Ronald Reagan and George Bush began doing this. By the 1930s and 1940s, what had been considered scandalous behavior in the 1920s, in sexual behavior, in marital relations, in religious beliefs, or non-religious beliefs, was now basically part of the national consciousness and an unremarked-upon part of everyday people's lives. But having said this, I should also note that the moral traditionalists of the 1920s, although they lost the battle, so to speak, for cultural supremacy to the forces of personal liberation, continued the war in the sense that they didn't just go away, but remained a significant force in American culture throughout the 20th century, and continued to influence that culture, in some periods more than others, through the 20th century, into the 1990s, embodied most prominently, as I said, by Kenneth Starr, who may not have been able to destroy Bill Clinton, as he tried, just as prohibitionists during the 1920s, were unable to end drinking in the United States. But the attempt to do so by Kenneth Starr and the attempt to do so by prohibitionists, uh, uh, the battle itself, in other words, uh, forced Americans to examine issues relating to cultural liberation and cultural traditionalism 
moral relativism and moral absolutism that link, I think, both the 1920s and the 1990s and the 20th century, 21st century. But turning now to the 1920s themselves, I think that the decade can be summed up in four words with the usual disclaimers that there are exceptions to every rule. And the four words, see, isn't this easy? Just four words. Prosperity, consumerism, liberation, and reaction. Let's start with prosperity. Now, in 1920, with World War I just having ended in 1918, the United States was in an admirable position economically relative to the rest of the world. As I mentioned a week ago, last, last Friday, it had been relatively unscathed by the First World War militarily, suffered little or no damage to its industrial infrastructure, lent millions of dollars to Great Britain and France and sent them huge amounts of supplies and armaments, becoming a major creditor in the process, the major creditor of both those nations, and a major creditor of other European nations that fought the war, whose economies and whose infrastructures were ruined. And perhaps most importantly, by 1920, America had expanded its productive capacity to the point where it was poised to supply the world, not to mention its own citizens, with a vast array of consumer goods and industrial products that America was essentially the only available supplier of, with Europe basically out of the picture as a competitor, at least as of 1920. And accordingly, after a brief period of uh, relative and inevitable dislocation uh, between 1919 and 1921, uh, uh, as America shifted from a wartime to a peacetime uh, economy, the American economy took off, making the, the 1920s, the decade as a whole, one of the most prosperous decades in our nation's history. Between 1922 and 1929, America's gross national product, its GNP, grew about 5% every year. A stunning record of expansion that, in another analogy to the 1990s, rivals what we experienced during that decade as well. During the 1920s, American unemployment was consistently below 5%, uh, again, uh, extremely healthy. And real wages, which are wages adjusted for inflation and rises in the cost of living, uh, and that's a crucial statistic. It isn't enough to just track unadjusted wages because they don't tell you as much. Uh, uh, they went up 15% during the 1920s, again a sign of a booming economy of prosperity. Now, prosperity was not nationwide, it should be noted, because the 1920s were a time of agricultural depression, essentially due to overproduction. Now, during the World War I years, from 1914 to 1918, there had been a tremendous demand for American farm products from war-torn Europe, and, uh, and as you might imagine, there were high prices and high profits. But once the war ended and Europe began to get back on its feet, growing its own food, prices started to decline. But... In America, pushed by the increasing mechanization of agriculture, especially the, electric, uh, the motorized tractor, uh, American farms just kept on producing uh, food, 
for a market that no longer really required it, at least by the early 1920s. And thus, American farmers were the great exception to the general rule of American prosperity during the 1920s. And this poverty amid plenty, so to speak, would have, I think, cultural as well as economic consequences in rural America. Because to rural Americans during this time, it seemed that everything was getting away from them, flowing toward the city. In 1920, the United States Census showed, for the first time in America's history, more people living in urban areas than rural areas, and that's very significant. The significance of this could not have been lost on America's rural population. And, as I mentioned earlier, urban America was prosperous during this time, while rural America lagged behind. And when you combine this with the personal lifestyles of many city dwellers, their self-expression, their freedom, their lack of sexual inhibition, and the fact that so many in the cities were now non-Protestants, and even worse to the religious Protestant rural dwellers, non-believers, believers in science, in rationalism, in evolution, rather than God. Then, as I'll discuss later in more detail, we have a recipe for a very strong culture-based rural reaction against the hated city and all it stood for, all its values. But for the average American, uh, and we know from the 1920 census that the farmer was no longer the average American, at least statistically, the 1920s were a period of plenty. The culture of America, consistent with a period of plenty, also revolved around business. Businessmen in American culture were considered to be heroes, since they were considered to be the ones responsible for the decade's prosperity. Calvin Coolidge, who was America's president during most of this decade, from 1923 to 1929, and a fervid believer in free market capitalism, put it best when he famously declaimed the business of America is business. The other Calvin Coolidge story that's famous is uh, he was known as Silent Cal. He had very little to say. Supposedly during a, a White House dinner party, a woman came up to him and said, President Coolidge, uh, I have bet my husband that I could make you say more than two words. His response to her was, you lose. That's the other Calvin Coolidge story. Now, in such a business-oriented uh, uh, America, uh, in such a business-oriented age as this, uh, it's not surprising that the advertising industry took off, which it did, with national advertising firms engaging in the mass marketing of prof uh, products through national magazines and mass circulation daily newspapers, not to mention a new invention called the radio, which almost half of American homes would have by the end of the 1920s. Now, these advertising firms specialized in selling, uh, of course, and in a society that was increasingly becoming a mass society, one in which individual identities were blurred, and you know, I talked about mass society in an early lect earlier lecture, uh, in this mass society, people more and more began to identify themselves by what they bought, 
by what they consumed. Not what they did, or what they produced, or what their jobs were. By their leisure time, not by their work. This is a very important trend in the 1920s. And mass advertising firms played on this need for identity in an impersonal mass society, a way somehow for the individual to distinguish himself from other individuals, his neighbors, by telling Americans, as mass advertisers did during the 1920s, that they would be popular, or they would be successful, or they would be loved if they use a particular product. And, to an unprecedented degree, Americans did buy these products during uh, the 1920s. Uh, which brings us to our second word to describe the decade, and that is consumerism. Americans spent like crazy in the 1920s. After all, World War I was over, they had jobs, they had good wages, and who better to spend money on than themselves? That's certainly the American way. And so Americans did spend money on all sorts of new devices and innovations that would make their lives easier or more enjoyable and fun, many of which they bought in another 1920s innovation on credit. It's the first time you have credit during the 1920s. And there were literally dozens of uh, these new products that made their appearance in the 1920s. It was actually a very technologically sophisticated age. Washing machines, refrigerators, electric irons, vacuum cleaners, electric toasters, even things we take completely for granted today, like bread you could buy in a store, or canned goods that you could buy at yet another modern 1920s convenience, uh, innovation and convenience, supermarkets, which were starting to dot the American landscape in the 1920s. And there were also miles and miles of roads and paved highways that were being built, which, of course, brings us to the most important consumer item of all in the United States in the 1920s. Not only for the 1920s, but perhaps for the entire 20th century as a whole, and that, of course, is the automobile. Now, when Henry Ford perfected the assembly line in the 19-teens, making it possible to produce a car about every 15 minutes or so, he laid the groundwork for what was to come in the 1920s, the mass production of inexpensive automobiles and their profusion among the American public. Now, between 1920 and 1929, the number of automobiles owned by Americans skyrocketed from 8 million, which itself is an impressive number, to an amazing 27 million. That's approximately one out of every five Americans, and a much higher percentage if you just count families. Now, I think it's fair to say that the automobile changed American life more, not just during the 1920s, but during the entire 20th century, than any other American invention, with the possible exception of the television, and the personal computer, which of course comes at the very end of the 20th century. The automobile made Americans infinitely more mobile, shrinking the distances between towns and making the beginnings of suburbanization possible. The automobile led to the growth of many other industries that, we, uh, that are connected to the automobile, the uh, restaurant industry, the motel industry, even the drive-in movie industry, uh, which now largely, unfortunately, no longer with us. 
the automobile led to the scourge of downtowns everywhere, the suburban mall. The automobile created a whole new pattern of social, family, and even sexual relations as uh, youth made the car the center of their universe, a gathering place on wheels, and as many conservative cultural critics charged something else on wheels as well, uh, which I'll leave to your imaginations. And speaking of this, now brings us to the third of the words that I uh, associated with the 1920s, and that word is liberation. The 1920s were the decade when, at least outside of rural areas in the South, what I described earlier in, in this course as Victorianism basically came to an end. And Victorianism was replaced in many parts of urban America by what we call modernism, an atmosphere of free expression, of uninhibited behavior, and of moral liberation, in which many Americans adopted their own moral codes, their own moral standards, codes that often had nothing to do with organized religion and adopted an attitude reminiscent in many ways of the 1960s and its slogan, if it feels good, do it. And women led the way in defining this new culture of liberation. Now, women had finally won the right to vote uh, in 1920, but there was more to it than this. More and more women were earning their own livings and living as single women outside the home before marriage. This is a continuation and an expansion of the new woman uh, a trend that began uh, during the first two decades of the 20th century and which I've already talked about in pre prior lectures. Thousands of women went to work during World War I to make up for the labor shortage of men going off to war. And there was also the liberating effect of World War I itself. Now, one does not usually associate a world war with cultural liberation. But this war, possibly because it was so disillusioning, millions and millions of deaths and not really all that much to show for it, had a tendency to rip what passed for conventional morality off of its hinges. And women in the 1920s, especially single women, became much freer and sexually liberated than at any previous time in American history. This liberation was reflected in fashion, with many single women re wearing skimpy dresses that, to the horrors of their elders, ended a few inches above the knee, and wearing tight-fitting caps. Actually, the dresses were pretty tight-fitting also. Uh, instead of the more broad-brimmed, flowing hat, uh, more worn by more matronly, older Victorian women. Single young women listened to jazz in the 1920s, which may have been to that decade what rap is to the present day, a free and earthy form of music with roots in black musical forms that immediately stamped the listener, the jazz listener, as a cultural iconoclast, as a rebel of sorts. These liberated women drank bootleg whiskey, we'll get to that in a moment, smoked cigarettes openly, a daring act in the 1920s. They danced to Charleston, a racy, rather naughty dance that went along with jazz music. They spoke about sex publicly. They 
openly flaunted their affairs. Now, these flappers, as they were called, uh, uh, thus turned every Victorian-era myth about women on their head. That they were quiet and demure. That they were sexually repressed. That they were weak creatures in need of protection. It changed all of this. And even married women flouted older cultural conventions about their roles. Before the 1920s, most American marriages were considered a sort of a contract between the husband and the wife, uh, whereby the husband uh, promised financial support and protection, and the wife promised service and support. Uh, It was more of a contract than any sort of love match. But this all changed in the 1920s with the new idea of what was known as companionate marriage. Now, in companionate marriage, husbands and wives were almost equal partners. They were really more like friends than anything else. They supported each other, largely free from the hierarchy, the patriarchy of the old Victorian style of marriage. And What's more, this idea of companionate marriage encouraged both men and women to be passionate within the marriage, in marked contrast to the older Victorian style in which only the male was considered to be capable of this kind of passion. Now, when you put all of this liberation together in the 1920s, you have a very, very strong cultural brew, one that was very difficult for moral traditionalists, especially those living in rural America and the South, to accept. And that brings us to our fourth and final word on the 1920s, and that word is reaction. Now, I've already mentioned the angry, fearful mindset of small-town Protestants as they eyed the growing, powerful, prosperous city and the non-Protestant immigrants, believers, non-believers, and cultural libertarians, small-town Protestants would have just called them libertines, who lived in these new powerful cities. And rural and small-town Americans expressed their alienation from this other America, their frustration, their fear of this other America through reaction, through an attempt to punish these modernists in the cities who trespassed against traditional morality, who trespassed against God's will. And they did this through an attempt to return America, just as Kenneth Starr wished to do in the 1990s, to a simpler and less morally ambiguous time. Now, small-town Americans attempted this reaction this cultural counter-revolution, if you will, in four basic ways. Through prohibition, through immigration restrictions, through religious fundamentalism, and through the Ku Klux Klan. Start with prohibition. Now, after almost a century of effort, prohibition finally became the law of the land through the 18th Amendment to the Constitution in 1920. And prohibition was a direct attack by Protestants on Catholics, especially Irish Catholics, and I think immigrants uh, in general. 
For most of the 19th century and into the 20th century, Protestants had tried to control the social and cultural behavior of Catholics and immigrants through controlling their consumption of alcohol. And given the anger afoot in small-town America in the 1920s, it is not surprising that the 1920s were their moment of triumph. They finally passed Prohibition. But Prohibition didn't do what its supporters thought it would do. It drove the manufacture and consumption of alcoholic beverages underground and into the hands of organized crime. It basically created organized crime. And many Americans, otherwise law-abiding Americans, broke the law by drinking bootleg whiskey in secret speakeasies or buying it under the table. Prohibition was eventually repealed in 1933 by the 21st Amendment to the Constitution as most of the nation sang the song Happy Days Are Here Again, uh, a a prohibition ending as a high-minded failure. Then there was immigration restriction, which was more successful in uh, small-town America's goal of hurting foreigners. In 1924, the Johnson-Reed Act passed Congress. After the interruption of World War I, immigration again spiked upwards in the early 1920s to pre-World War I levels, with almost one million arriving in 1921. But unlike the situation before World War I, when immigrant labor was needed for America's factories, by the 1920s, the wartime arrival of African Americans from the South as well as Mexicans, not to mention the increasing mechanization of American industry, uh, in these circumstances, these new immigrants were now considered economically unnecessary. America didn't want them. They didn't need them. And so the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924. But the Johnson-Reed Act was more than an attempt to keep immigrants out of America. It was an attempt to keep non-Protestant immigrants out of America. Because the law set a quota for future immigration, which consisted of a percentage of a particular ethnic group's total immigration in the year 1890. And the year 1890 was picked for this law, the quota based on 1890, instead of, let's say, 1900 or 1910, Because in 1890, there were much fewer immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe and more from Protestant nations like Great Britain or the Scandinavian nations. Eastern and Southern European immigration to the United States began to go up after 1890. So they picked 1890 for that reason. And the Johnson-Reed Act accomplished its purpose, cutting the number of total immigrants to 20% of the pre-World War I level, and severely restricting the number of entering Italians, Poles, Slavs, and most tragically, Jews, many of whom died in the Holocaust during World War II because their small immigration quotas were already filled. Now, the third prong of America's, uh, 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 or small-town America's, reaction to the cultural liberation of urban America in the 1920s was through religious fundamentalism. Now, fundamentalism was a direct challenge to the secularist, rationalist mores of urban industrial society. A challenge 
based on the literal interpretation of the Bible. The idea that uh, urban America was godless and morally relativist. And the most famous expression of this fundamentalist impulse during the 1920s, of course, was the Scopes trial in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925, involving the prosecution of a high school biology teacher, John Scopes, for including the theory of evolution in his curriculum. Now, this trial attracted national attention, certainly as many media covering it proportionately as, let's say, the O.J. Simpson trial. And two famous Americans on opposite sides of the modernist, traditionalist divide in America, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan, squared off respectively as defense attorney for Scopes and prosecutor of Scopes. The Scopes trial, which is the subject of the celebrated play and movie Inherit the Wind, and uh, there was a section on Inherit the Wind in the, uh, uh, the, uh, the textbook reading that we had for today, ended in the conviction of Scopes. But not before members of the media, especially the noted Baltimore essayist H.L. Mencken. Who's heard of H.L. Mencken? Has anybody heard of him? Yeah. Uh, uh, who's, who's seen Inherit the Wind, the film Inherit the Wind? You know, the Gene Kelly character plays H.L. Mencken in that uh, you know, very, very cynical, urban, uh, 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 eastern uh, you know, journalist. Uh, uh, and members of the media, especially the eastern media, you know, during the Scopes trial, especially Mencken, uh, portrayed religious fundamentalists uh, during this trial uh, as little more than superstitious bigots and ignorant parroters of discredited uh, religious dogma. That really comes through uh, in the Inherit the Wind uh, movie. Fundamentalism never really recovered from the Scopes trial, at least among national opinion makers. Uh, and until really the 1970s and the rise of the new right in America, we'll be talking about that when we get to the 70s, uh, fundamentalism was almost forced underground in American cultural life, derided by American intellectuals uh, who may have thought from their rather limited perspective, and sometimes there are a few people who have more of a limited perspective than intellectuals, uh, that fundamentalism had disappeared altogether in American life until events in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, in the early part of the 20th century, taught them the hard way otherwise as the religious right, religious fundamentalism, resurged in America through the vehicle of the Republican Party. And finally, the final prong of this uh, uh, traditionalist counterattack on modernism and liberation in America was an extra-legal one of sorts, the new Ku Klux Klan. Now, the old Ku Klux Klan had been destroyed during the Reconstruction period in the United States in the 1870s. The new Klan was formed in 1915, inspired by the racist film Birth of a Nation, which glorified the 1870s version of the Ku Klux Klan. Who's seen Birth of a Nation? Has anybody seen that? I've always said that that, uh, that is a film, it's a very, very long, silent film. The original version runs something like four hours. The version that we have here that I show to some of my classes is a little shorter, at maybe two and a half to three hours. But it's a long, silent film. But I've always said if there's one film that any American history student should see, it's Birth of a Nation. Not necessarily because it's a great film 
great film, but because they should... In other words, if you want to know where a lot of our attitudes towards race come from, uh, you have to see that film. Uh, in any case, the new Ku Klux Klan was founded in 1915 in the wake of uh, this film, Birth of a Nation. Now, the new Ku Klux Klan, in keeping with the biases of small-town Americans targeted Catholics and Jews in addition to blacks. The old clan of the 1870s basically just targeted blacks. And in fact, Catholics and Jews may have been as menacing to the Protestants in the new Ku Klux Klan as blacks were. This new version of the Ku Klux Klan was as strong in the North as it was uh, in the South. And it actually elected the governor of Indiana in 1924 when it boasted 4 million members nationwide. Now, the Klan was concerned with preserving what it considered to be white Anglo-Saxon morality from the depredations of Catholics and Jews who they considered to be uh, uh, depraved, you know, morally depraved, sexually depraved. An indication, I think, of the real reason for this version of the Ku Klux Klan. Not Catholics or Jews or even blacks, per se, but what they represented to small-town Protestants. Cultural openness moral relativism, and secular modernism. Secular, we know, we know what the word secular means, right? What is, what is secular? Non-religious. Non-religious. Non-religious, sometimes anti-religious, but at least non-religious. Okay? And as such, as so, so militantly uh, against this new secular modernism, the Ku Klux Klan was clearly, from what I've said today about winners and losers in the cultural wars of the 1920s, doomed to defeat. And defeated it was, rent by corruption and internal divisions. It disintegrated by the end of the 1920s, a real shooting star. And so, in the end, only one of the four prongs of the reaction to the cultural liberation of the 1920s uh, immigration restriction, achieved its purpose. And even this was just a limited success, since it obviously did not affect uh, those individuals and those immigrants who were already uh, in the country. So reaction basically failed. The 1920s, however, did end with cultural liberation ascendant. That's the other word. The 20s also ended with another of the four words that I used to describe the 1920s, consumerism, ascendant as well. But what about my one remaining word, prosperity? Well, in 1929, it seemed that prosperity would be a permanent condition in the United States. Wages were still high, unemployment was still low, and the stock market was rising. Workers were buying shares in the companies that they worked for, a so-called people's capitalism that seemed to be all the proof one needed of the health of the American economy. Labor union membership was dropping, as it had throughout the 1920s, from 5 million to 3 million Americans uh, between 1920 and 1929. That, that number in 1929 is only about 10% of the American labor force, very low. It was almost as if workers were saying that they didn't need unions because things were going so well without them. By 1929, Republicans, led by uh, newly inaugurated Republican President Herbert Hoover, claimed that 
they had solved the riddle of the business cycle and found the secret of permanent prosperity. The rules of America's, America's economy and American life seem clear in 1929. Free markets, expanding production, and business leadership. The business of America is business. It all seems so simple, so easy, really. Until October 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday, the day the bubble of prosperity burst, the stock market crashed, and the rules in America began to change. We'll see how Americans coped with the Great Depression on Monday.